Hey there, I'm Andrew Yeager, and this is WBHM Politics. The issue of guns in schools has been in the news the past month after a gunman walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, killing 17 people. It spurred a renewed discussion about how to keep students safe. It's also inspired young folks to speak out and advocate for action around gun issues. And in Birmingham, these issues became very real when a student was shot and killed at Huffman High School earlier this month. For the podcast today, I wanted to bite off just a few pieces of this complicated topic, and we'll do that through a series of conversations. A little later on, we'll hear from a young woman who's organizing a march in Birmingham to call for restrictions on guns. We'll also have some historical perspective. But first, we'll start in the schools. And someone who has been thinking a lot about school safety recently is Kevin Maddox. He's an assistant superintendent for the Homewood City Schools. He tells me for all the attention on safety generated by the Parkland shooting, it was actually the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting in Connecticut that spurred Homewood into action. The first thing that we we did after studying the event was we learned how important, how critical it is to have a thumb turn locking mechanism on classroom doors. I would venture to say that very few school systems have thumb turns. And essentially what that means is in the case of a lockdown, as in Sandy Hook, it allows anyone in that classroom to lock that classroom door immediately without a key. And instead of a teacher needing to go find keys to lock the door, the locking mechanism uh, is it's immediate. And we felt like that was the first step to take. The second was we really ramped up collaboration with the Homewood Police Department. And we began working together, collaborating on drills. We actually conducted our first active shooter drill in the fall of 2013 with all of our staff members at Homewood High School. And that was probably the most profound, uh, most impactful drill that we've ever done because for many of our staff members, they've never been around gunfire. You know, many of our teachers said, you know, I will never forget that sound and what that was like. We had the thumb turns and the active shooter drill, and then we changed our lockdown procedures. But that is on one side of it. That is the, if this happens, this is what we're going to do. We're a lot more hyper-focused now, and I believe this incident has us hyper-focused on how we can be more proactive. So how do you do that? What preventative measures are you looking at so that you're not just dealing with the incident when it erupts? I think for us, there's several. First of all, we're able to do this because we're a smaller school system. We're really a tight-knit community where our teachers know our students and our students know our teachers. And we really stress that we want our staff members to be connected to students. And so that when something is not right with the student, we have someone in that building that knows it immediately. And they can reach out to someone, be it a, an administrator or a counselor to say, Look, this kid just, he isn't himself today, and I'm worried about him. And then immediately we're going to begin, you know, intervention. We also have a a collaborative intervention model that basically looks at students from uh, the perspectives of academics, social, and behavior. It allows us to identify those students, to try to intervene in those students, to, to help them get back to a normal routine. Certainly doesn't mean that every school shooting suspect would fit into that model. But for us, it at least helps us identify the level of at-riskness that a student may have. What have you heard from parents over the last month when it comes to school safety? I think probably one of the main questions is, you know, parents want to know about um, SROs. 
and school resource, school officers. resource officers. And for Homewood, we had up until this incident occurred, we had an SRO at Homewood Middle and Homewood High, and then we had two SROs that rotated between the three elementary schools. Immediately following that incident, and because of our collaboration with the police department, Chief Ross uh, came and met with us, and he said, I am putting three more SROs into the schools immediately. Primarily, that's a question. Sometimes you'll get a question about, you know, typically in a school building, you'll have one door that, that's unlocked in the front for the public to enter. So we had some parents question, should we lock that door as well and have someone there manning that door? For us, thankfully, with our SROs, we have an SRO at the front door that's, that's pretty much stationed there the majority of the time. We're also adding secure vestibules to all of our schools um, this, this coming summer and then through construction next year, basically on a buzz-in system that would, that would basically force anyone to be buzzed in and then move through an office before coming into contact with, with students or staff members. So, and then the third question sometimes we will get is related to metal detectors. We feel that we have a, a very secure school system and a safe school system. Uh, that is not something that we feel like we need to move toward at this time. But we certainly understand um, why someone would bring that to our attention. Well, another side of this story coming out of Florida is student activism and students getting yes. energized around around gun issues. Yes. And, and some of this are more traditional marches, protests, things like that. Right. But there's also national walkout days that have right. been, been organized, yes. some of them uh, this month and next. How do you approach that as, as an educator? Right. Homewood is a very inclusive, very diverse school system. And we have always tried to be supportive of, of issues that are important to students. And we know this incident that occurred in Parkland, Florida, had an impact on students. It had an impact on my own children. And I think they ask questions and they want to talk about it and they want to ensure that they're going to be safe. So it's natural, it's human nature to want to discuss these things. We are completely supportive of our students participating in walkout day. And we understand their desire to do so and honoring the victims of Parkland. We know these issues are important today, and we're not going to turn our head and pretend they're not there. But you do have to continue with school. We're not going to mandate students participate, but we're not going to throw up roadblocks to prohibit them from participating. Well, this is an incident that's gotten attention across the country. There's discussion in Washington, discussion in Montgomery around some response. For the general public, for political leaders, what do they not understand about the position you're in, that educators are in, or what would you like them to understand? Okay, I'm going to give you a perfect example. We spend in the state of Alabama millions of dollars per year on fire protection systems, on sprinkler systems. We conduct fire drills. We, we have fire inspections. And I'm not saying that that's not important, but we haven't lost a student in Alabama to a fire. I know in over 50 years, I'm not sure how far back the data goes, but that same level of, of expectation and responsibility is not given when it comes to school safety, whether it be the simple thumb turn locks that I'm referring to, whether it's security cameras, whether it's mandating that we have an SRO in every single school in the state. Those kinds of things, it seems when it comes to safety, money is an obstacle, but it's not when it comes to fire safety. I'm not saying lose one for the other. I'm saying we have seen the tragedies pile up 
you know, with these kinds of incidents. And we're not seeing that with fire safety. So we've done something right with fire safety. I say let's do the same thing when it comes to schools security. That's Kevin Maddox. He's an assistant superintendent with the Homewood City Schools. In the days after the shooting in Florida, students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School began speaking out to the traditional news media and on social media, demanding an end to mass killings and gun violence. Their outspokenness not only kept the issue before the public, but inspired real on-the-ground activism. On March 24th, a series of events called March for Our Lives will be held in cities across the country, including Birmingham. Ashley Causey is a senior at Helena High School and an organizer of the Birmingham March. She tells me she's had strong political beliefs, but never organized something like this before. I just, I'm sick of sitting around and students really kind of feel powerless. They feel like, you know, I'm young, I can't do anything. Um, Nobody's going to listen to me, but I think the kids in Parkland, what they started to do, they really showed that, you know, even if you're a kid, it doesn't matter. You can still have beliefs. Don't let adults tell you that you can't believe, that you can't be informed because they just think that we're stupid and we don't know what we're talking about. I just think those kids really took a stand for students and made them think, you know, I can actually do something about this instead of just sitting around and posting about it on social media. So what's the chatter been like among students since all this happened? It really depends on what area you're in, I think, because um, if you're towards Huffman, I mean, those kids, what they went through, um, you know, obviously they're probably at a much higher concern. I just think that people don't become concerned until something happens. Like, they just leave everything alone, don't take any measures. Until something happens, then they take those measures immediately. But it's like, why could you not have this before? I just think, you know, students are obviously worried. Um, I have actually uh, one of my friends, her father, she... He gave all of his children bulletproof vests to keep in their backpacks because he was worried about, you know, if everything, anything happens, you need this. And it's just, it's terrifying that parents have to think about that and send their kids to school with things that they should go into battle with. It's just scary. Are there particular policies that you're advocating? Yes. Um, Obviously, we do not want teachers to be armed in schools because that is probably going to be one of the most dangerous things that could happen. And I've talked to teachers from almost every school and none of them believe that this is a good idea. I've talked to principals. They say that if if something did happen, you know, we would not do that in our school, things like that. Um, we want the age to be risen to 21 because those are specific to Alabama. To, to buy an assault rifle or buy, buy a um, weapon? Buy a weapon. Buy a weapon, period. Banning of assault rifles and semi-automatics. That, and I mean, there's some that are personal to me. Like, I don't think that um, if you're on the no-fly list, you shouldn't be able to get a gun because if you're too dangerous to be on a plane, you should be too dangerous to own a gun. People accused or arrested for domestic violence shouldn't be allowed to have guns because usually they take those guns and then kill the people they've been abusing. Uh, Just more stricter background checks and also making sure that things get reported correctly because half these people have been investigated multiple, multiple times and it just doesn't get reported to the right people or they don't take it seriously and then that person ends up legally getting a gun. And then also we want to advocate for in schools, like teaching more about mental illness so you know the signs and you can help those people instead of just ignoring it and letting something like this happen. Obviously, we're in Alabama. It's a conservative Mm -hmm. state overall, and just the general political culture isn't necessarily favorable to some of the things that you outlined. Mm -hmm. What do you help to achieve with this march, with what you've been organizing? Like my family, um, I waited a little bit to tell them because I wanted to sit down with each of them individually because they are proud gun owners and they are pro-gun So I waited to talk to them each, you know, separately. 
And, you know, I talked, you know, these are the basic things that I believe because nobody wants to take anybody's guns away. I don't know why that's always the immediate thing people go to. And I was like, you know, that's not what we're about. And I said, we're basically about this, this, this. And it was very just simple things. They said, well, we believe that too. I just want people to realize that as soon as something like this happens, you don't need to go off in your own corners and figure out, okay, somebody just died. Let's figure out how we're going to set up our argument because we're going to have to argue on Facebook. No, we want people because I don't think there's a single person that can tell me that something doesn't need to change. Ashley Causey is a senior at Helena High School and an organizer of the March for Our Lives Birmingham. That event takes place March 24th at Railroad Park. My name is Barry McNeely. I'm the program consultant for the education division at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And you're a former teacher, too. And I've taught from 98 till now. And the reason I called up Barry is because there's been a comparison made between the students in Parkland, Florida, and something from Birmingham's history— just as the students have been driving discussion around gun violence, Birmingham's children had a key part of the civil rights movement. It was the spring of 1963. African-American school children held nonviolent marches against segregation in what's called the Children's Crusade. And if you know your history, they were met with police dogs and fire hoses and arrested. But they also gave life to a movement that at that moment was floundering. Some commentators have drawn parallels between those Birmingham children and the students of Parkland. Barry McNeely says it's an apt comparison, but young people had been involved in civil rights before 1963. The students at Miles College and the students at Daniel Payne College uh, participated in the um, selective buying campaigns. So uh, this is where they would only buy from, from places, or I should say they weren't buying from places that didn't allow African Americans to buy products or services from them. Exactly. Now, they couldn't use the word boycott. Um, because it's illegal to boycott a lawful business in you know, Alabama, according to our Constitution. But they were very intentional about what they were doing. And these uh, students, um, even before the students in 1963, showed a willingness and also showed a understanding of what was going on around them and where they fit in to be able to try to make a statement to support statements that were already being made. So when I, I look at that, I look at the students uh, from Stoneman Douglas, and I don't see a great deal of difference. One of the things that I guess we could address is the, the powerlessness of youth. Uh, when we start talking about the right to vote, you have to be 18, and so you don't have a great deal of political power unless you find a way to exert it outside of the ballot box. In the 50s and the 60s, it was selective buying, it was marching, it was sit-ins. Today, in 2018, I see that we are more media savvy. It might be different in terms of the way it's being applied, but it's that same idea of that, that energy of youth and also just the idea that I'm not going to be told to shut up. Well, you use that phrase, the powerlessness of youth. I wonder if there's something different about the protests that, say, adults like Fred Shuttlesworth or Martin Luther King Jr., you know, figures we're familiar with, versus the children who march. Were they able to do something that, say, the adults couldn't do? Well, in Birmingham, they were able to do something that the adults couldn't do to the level of Birmingham, Alabama, in terms of the timeline of the civil rights movement, 
falls behind Albany, Georgia. Dr. King had gone there in 1961 through 1962, and he was not successful. Uh, when he came to Birmingham in the summer of 1962, Fred Shuttlesworth encouraged him to make Birmingham your next target. You know, it took some cajoling on Fred Shuttlesworth's part because Dr. King doesn't agree to this until December of 62. But once they agreed to bring to bear the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to take on the segregation of Birmingham and Bull Connor, they had a problem. And the problem was the elephant in the room was Albany. A lot of people realized that Dr. King had made a concerted effort there, and he wasn't successful. And so, in effect, when he comes to Birmingham, he's asking people to potentially lose their job or potentially be thrown in jail and not be able to promise, so to speak, that this would be something that would actually um, become what they wanted it to be. And so with that, uh, they turned to the young people. Of course, for the most part, the young people didn't have to worry about losing their jobs and a lot of other adult concerns. And, and I love to say that um, also young people have with them a natural something that knows how to resist authority. <laughs> As a parent, I, I, I see that often. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's nothing that you create. It's just it's within them. And I think that's a, a part of the energy of youth. If we put this in context in a different way, if you walk through a high school in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, black or white, the students felt as if this world was going to change. Change was all the way around them. And Although the adults, a lot of them, were standing on the beach holding back the tide, young people were years and years ahead of where their parents were and their grandparents were. I guess we get to a certain age and it has something to do with gray hair or whatever, but we start to think things are just the way they are. I, I just don't think young people think like that. Well, if we go back to our history, at that moment in 1963 in, in the Civil Rights Movement, they hadn't had success in Georgia, came to Birmingham. The Children's March happened. We had dogs and fire hoses that spurred legislative action. I mean, is it fair to say that that kept the civil rights movement alive, or is that overplaying the significance of the Children's Marches? Not at all. In fact, Congressman John Lewis, he's quoted as saying that Selma might have never happened had it not been for Birmingham. In thinking about the significance of those Children's Marches, one of the things that came out of that was the public shock over how those protesters were treated by police and those images spurred action. And I was thinking about the reaction today to the students that are making statements around these issues around gun restrictions and so on. You've had schools that are allowing students to walk out. You know, you have colleges that say we won't hold it against them if they do have some disciplinary action. I wonder if the fact that it's being accommodated in some way blunts the effectiveness of that protest? I would think in terms of accommodating the students there in Florida, I, I wouldn't say that they were being accommodated. I would say that they have earned that. On a more national point, because of the success 
of the civil rights movement. I mentioned earlier, you know, the whole idea of standing on the beach trying to hold back the tide. I would think that those colleges and those school systems that are making a way for this to happen, they're just cognizant of, I think uh, another educator said it better than me. Her name was Diane Nash, and she was an educator with the Civil Rights Movement. She's part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. There you go. Diane Nash said, and she said this for those times, but I feel like it's apropos for, for now. She said that we started feeling the power of an idea whose time had come. So we've made this comparison between 1963 and Florida in 2018. What do you see as the lessons that those children's marches left? I think that the lessons are in a democracy. When people come together around an idea, it might not be an overnight change, but that change will be inevitable. I'm not going to be creative here at all. I'm going to take what one of these young people from Stoneman Douglas said. He said that, get ready for change because we'll outlive you. If you're talking to somebody who's 16, 17, 18 years old, and if they're committed to the level that the students were committed to in 1962 and in 1963 and again in 1964 and 65, if they're committed to that level, then, yeah, that change will come. Barry McNeely works in the Education Division at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And that's it for this edition of WBHM Politics. The show was produced by Gigi Duban and myself. Our theme song is by local Birmingham guitarist Eric Essex, and it's called Find Your Way. Let us know what you think. Send us a message through the WBHM Facebook page or tweet at us. We're at WBHM, or you can use the hashtag WBHMPolitics. And if you listen to WBHM, you probably know we're gearing up for our spring pledge drive that officially starts next week. We are a member-supported service. That means the people who listen give to help support all that we do. That includes this podcast. So if you can, kick in a little bit. And for podcast listeners, we have a special thank you gift, a WBHM Politics button. Just go to the page for this episode at our website, wbhm.org, click on the donate button there, and you can claim yours. If you haven't subscribed, please do it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, help us out by writing a review. I'm Andrew Yeager. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.